Guess what I had for breakfast this morning? What? Rinta. Rinta. Yeah, so did I. <laughs> How do you feel? I feel really Energized. good. <laughs> Hello, it's Peter here. This is the final podcast in this year's DTM series. And in it, we explore what the future might hold for design methods and particularly how AI and data will change the process of design. Or maybe not. First of all, I talked to Elisa Jacardi, a professor here in Delft, and someone who explores how cutting-edge technologies are changing the way we think about designing. After the interview, Mika and I try to figure out the future and surprisingly return to some familiar DTM concepts. Perhaps the future isn't so different to how we design now. Well, to find out the answer to this question, we'd better get on with the podcast. <laughs> So I'm sat here in the studio with Elisa Giacardi, who is a professor of interactive media design here at IDE and Delft, and also a professor of post-industrial design at Umea University in Sweden. So you have a two major roles. <laughs> but you're also an, an expert in artificial intelligence and designing. And we're going to talk about the future of design methods and design processes. So welcome to the DTM podcast, Elisa. Yes, thank you. Peter, thank you for having me. Uh, the expert in artificial intelligence and design might be a little bit too much, <laughs> but I certainly am very interested in, in artificial intelligence and disruptive technologies in general. Ah, good. So you've recently written a, a really interesting paper yeah. that you gave me to read, getting across the idea of more than human mm. design. Mm. Uh, and I think we'll come on to talk about that in more detail. But my first question was, how did you come to be interested in AI and design? Yes, I have always been quite fascinated by technology because I'm interested in how humans communicate and interact and through that uh, build a, a reality around themselves. And today, most of that happens through technology. So any kind of technology that does have an impact on how we communicate or how we interact, for me, it's absolutely fascinating. And then I started to look into digital networks very early on, looking into Web 2.0 architectures, social media, Internet of Things, now artificial intelligence. It's kind of a natural. So you've had a long history of, yeah, of exploring with, technology. Uh, yes. Yeah. In your paper, to quote, from your paper, you say something that I thought was really interesting, actually, mm. and it's the design process is no longer something that happens before production. And I think we're very used to having the idea of design mm. uh, that produces something at the end of it, or the process results in in a product at the end of it. So kind of a stabilizing process with yeah. something at the end. Yeah. yeah. So what, what can you describe what you mean by that? Yeah. Uh, so the kind of design, as we know, we don't often teach it, particularly in our bachelor programs really comes out of the logic of industrial production. And so when, when we used to uh, design chairs for mass production, then we needed to make sure that what we were designing was right. And we developed ways of doing that, methods for uh, prototyping iteratively um, and, and, and try to minimize risks of mass replicating mm -hmm. faults or shortcomings in what we were designing. But the kind of technologies that we have now, like um, data technologies and artificial intelligence in particular, really challenge and are very different from that kind of logic. So what happens is that not only 
what we design can be constantly updated at a lower cost. Before, it, it, if we didn't get it right, then it was a problem. All the thinking yeah. and all the testing has to be done before production because changing something afterward was very difficult and complicated and very costly. And now not only we can do it in a more agile way, the, the very product that we are experiencing is coming into being, so to speak, um, at runtime, is assembled yeah, at runtime. Yeah. Yeah, so right. my Netflix right. looks very different and behaves very differently than your Netflix because it comes together as, a, as something that I can experience. Yeah in the very moment of use and it feeds on that use so with this type of technologies that are based on information and data the distinction between production and consumption is almost dismantled mm. and design in a way continues in use and after use and it feeds um, into that what you're describing is a much yeah. more fluid Mm. There's more fluidity, it seems yeah. like, that, that in, the, in, in what we produce as products. Because we're very used to the idea that mm. at the very beginning of the design processes, those are the decisions that, have, um, that you need to get right yeah. for production because yeah. they're cheap to make at the beginning, but they're expensive to make at the end. Exactly. But does that, that turns around that whole process mm. into something. So what, what are we actually designing then? <laughs> what are we actually designing? Um, we are designing conditions for a certain type of interactions and experiences to, to come to expression or for certain value propositions to become worth of us interacting with the product or with the service. Hmm. There is a fluidity, so there is a malleability that is intrinsic to the different type of material that we're working with, but there is also... I like to think of it as 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 a as a more probabilistic character mm -hmm. to what we make. Can you give an example of a of a, of a product, maybe in healthcare or something like that, or, or? In, in in for example, um, there is this startup in the UK called Vitality, and uh, I believe um, you can call it as often is referred as an intertech is using um, data technology to monitor people's uh, physical activity and, and use that to provide a certain type of uh, uh, insurance plan and benefits. And so that insurance plan does not exist mm -hmm. prior to you buying the wearable, wearing it, and okay. performing you know, everyday activities uh, or, or, or exercising, yeah, yeah. taking walks, and, and so on and so forth. So um, in that sense, it's probabilistic because the, there is, of course, a set of parameters that are set, um, but the outcomes of that is not necessarily always predictable. Defined or defined yeah, yeah, yeah. completely upfront. So it's more, more like kind of setting a sequence of, or a set of parameters in motion as a uh, as a kind of design or a rough design and then seeing what happens so that it's it's, it's constant prototyping i guess it is it is it, yes it's sort of a constant prototyping uh roy ascott who was my phd supervisor a long time ago was used to call it a kind of seeding seeding conditions uh, and in some cases this may be parameters uh in other cases might, might be constraints for a certain type of interaction mm -hmm. 
but it's it's sitting rather than planning ahead completely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and no, I, th- I, I, th- I think it's, it's really interesting just the idea that we, in education, we're still teaching a design process mm. very much aimed at a certain product and an outcome and assessing that outcome. And um, But the, 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 loop, it, the loops are, it's, are it's, really... It's really tricky because in a way we, we need and want to be able to anticipate yeah. to an extent the outcome, but we cannot fully, completely anticipate it at design time, so we need to be able to anticipate not the outcome in and by itself, but the type of interactions that may feed into a certain type of mm. outcome so mm. or produce certain kind of consequences. And that's the shift that I don't think we're conceptually and methodologically really equipped Prepared to. For. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There are two aspects that you talk about in the paper which I think are really interesting. They're sort of a, maybe at different ends of the design process, but one is the idea mm. that we're used to the user or the person mm. being at the center of a design yeah. process. You know, we design for people. Yeah. Uh, the design process is aimed at sort of understanding people people's requirements. Mm-hmm. That's one aspect to design. Then the yeah. the other one is this the stakeholders in a mm. in a process and how we bring various groups to participate in a design process. Yeah. You know, that may be a client. It may be. Um, certain user groups or yeah. manufacturers or but we're used to this idea of thinking about stakeholders mm. and i want to kind of explore those two concepts so first of all the kind of user yeah what what does it mean when you it's an, no, <laughs> when you're it's, not having that that user at the center of the process yeah, anymore yeah no it's a, it's it's actually a very interesting question i never really i guess try to articulate it in that in that way but but it is quite interesting so the the critique of focusing on the user is not so much because what people want or need matters less but because of this logical industrial production that has informed the way in which we think about design we still approach the design of this type of technologies and the products and services platforms that come with it as something that is there to be used mm-hmm. and consumed mm-hmm. um, in a certain way, mm-hmm. according to a particular intention. But because of this intrinsic character of the object of design, which is probabilistic, the reality is that there is not just one single use. Mm-hmm. There are many different uses. And so if you take, for example, Fade's book, it's quite classical example, right? The way in which it makes sense to me as a certain type of user might be for how it allows me to um, curate certain events or certain uh, relationships in my life but for another user or shall we call it stakeholder and then it's instead about the data that i can use for advertising purposes so they're kind of unknowable uses so so the same system is basically serving the needs of many different users or many different stakeholders and then the device is trying to understand that use somehow well the device the the respond to it yeah it does offer a value to all of of them Mm. all at the same time yeah. And so and so maybe we need to think in terms of stakeholders rather than just simply users. So that leads me on to the stakeholders, which I think you, you make a really yeah. nice point, which is is that when we think of participation in design, mm. we think of it as a kind of democratic in a way that you're giving people mm. different voices in the design mm. process. Mm. But when one of the participants in the design process is an artificial intelligence, 
Yeah. It gets rid of that idea because of democracy because we're, they don't have any rights or we're not giving them any rights to express no, themselves. It, or so. Mm. so how does that affect the participative so, process? Right. I, no, I think it's an important distinction to be made. The, the claim that we make in that article that in order to move forward in how we think of um, the conceptual space that we need for dealing with this new type of complexity... And we talk of intelligent products, artificial intelligence being a participant in the design process. Mm -hmm. It's not because they have a, a, a moral stand in the process, because they need to be involved on, on the basis of that moral standing, but because they, the, the data-driven logics that come with machine behavior are logics that we do not fully understand because they they're sort of intelligent on their own terms it's, they not, have it's a non-human intelligence exactly it's it's yeah. you know they they participate in making things in making your netflix yeah. coming to life in in making the price of your next uber ride um in making mm -hmm. your insurance plan yeah. they take part in that and so in a way, they are actively involved in the design process. And they do it according to logics and perspectives that are non-human. Mm. So I just want to be able to understand them and account for those and factor them in the design Into process. Into the design process, yeah. Uh, and for doing that, I need to bring them to the table in a different way than just thinking of them as tools that I can use for a specific purpose because that's just not what happens. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so we, for example, have developed methods and techniques to interrogate those kind of logics mm. and to try to understand them and factor them in the design process. I think you, you make a good point about human participants in design mm. pro process, processes have some sense of responsibility too, mm. uh, whereas artificial intelligent agents they're responsive but they're not responsible so mm -hmm. they're, they're 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 reacting in the same way that yeah. we react to, yeah. to situations but they're not they're not responsible for their the decisions no, that they make or and, and, you know. but, but that's where it becomes interesting right because they're not responsible in moral terms but there is this beautiful quote but by ingold that says that ultimately all responsibility is a matter of responsiveness okay I can be responsible only when I can respond. Mm. So even if for a moment we we bracket a notion of morality as a way to understand responsibility and we start considering responsibility as the ability to respond, I think it becomes very interesting mm. because mm. then also machines might have different ways of responding or tuning their responses mm. And, and that could be quite an interesting design challenge for us. Mm. I guess we're used to the, the, the phrase of co-designing, yeah. a lot of the idea that everyone contributes something. You have a phrase that, that, that's co-performance. Co-performance, yes. Which I really like because it sort of suggests that you really have to <laughs> do something a little bit differently. With co-design, you sort of think everyone in the room kind of knows what, they're doing or what the purpose is but co-performance is much more of a sort of exploration and yeah but I, th perhaps. I think also that the, the core performance really is about the interplay 
between humans and machines or non-human entities. And it's an idea that is fundamentally based on the acknowledgement that the kind of things that a human and a machine can do, quote-unquote, well, are quite differently. They are quite different. And, and so co-performance is a way of taking advantage of that complementarity but it's very much positioned in use. So you could also say the co-design continues after an initial design phase with this type of technologies. And in another article, I talk about this sustained co-creation that's enabled by these kind of technologies between humans and, and machines. But the co-performance really stresses the element of how we contribute to shaping certain type of social practices together. Yeah, no, no I, I really like that. So I think we've sort of been talking around the idea mm -hmm. of responsibility. And I think the interesting thing about how processes and methods might develop in the future is they become ethical questions. Yes, They embrace ethical issues to a much larger extent, mm -hmm. I think, than design methods have in the past, which I think opens up interesting discussions. Because yeah. we, we're sort of used to thinking of the design process about anticipating consequences or being able to mm -hmm. somehow predict consequences. And we try to limit unintended consequences so we tend to we want to limit accidents happening and and really back to the user we want the user to have this experience that we've intended them to have yes uh, does the embracing a, a artificial intelligence design does it does it open up unintended consequences is it, is it more liable to that i think that or at least let's put it in this way i hope that by better understanding machine behavior, we can account for those unintended consequences better. And and in a way, the, what I think is needed is not so much developing ways that can help us really fully anticipate these consequences in terms of outcome, but understanding what are the maybe distinct rules for the interaction or for the way in which different, let's say, stakeholders participate in the design process, one that is ethical, uh, one that it gives enough, enough handles for humans to still be autonomous in their decisions, or that gives enough space to find meaning mm -hmm. in the outcome um, of, of that specific interaction. In a project, for example, that we have just wrapped up last year, we did take some of these ideas into practice. And in doing that, we really critiqued what we thought a quite unethical push of using, uh, in that case, machine learning as a way to impose certain type of behaviors onto elderly people, which was the specific um, target for our project, we are looking into assistive technologies for older people and how using machine learning can become instead a way of empowering them mm -hmm. when you understand that there are different ways in which you can design the algorithms, not just for accurately predicting the outcomes, but for facilitating certain type of interactions in daily life. But in this case, we're just very um, simple, um, resourceful strategies that older people often put in place to cope with their aging skills. So how can machine learning reinforce that, facilitate mm -hmm. that? So in that sense, I would say that the ethical uptake um, is 
what we refer in, in, in that article that, that you read as an ethical know-how rather than an ethical know-what. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what's, thinking about the future, mm. what will a design method of the future look like? How will designers interact with them if we think now that methods are things that we write down in, in books and on websites? Mm. and um, which, which, which bits of the process? I think maybe it's useful to think in terms of which bits will become more automated mm. somehow because I think, I, think, I think the idea of automation is it's very difficult to think about our AI, isn't it? But it, 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 oh. it sort of automates these things that you're I mean, not quite I, aware of. So. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there are already aspects of the design process that are automated and 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 i think that we will see more of that but then again going back to the core performance what are we good and what machines are good at certain type of data collection or parametrimi how do you say that Uh, parameterization that one (laughs) that 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 can very easily be done by machines right so even benchmarking for example but any interpretation of the data or the patterns um, that are extracted, for example, through machine learning, um, any kind of sense making, that is not something that you can fully automate. And so what I think that a method, assuming that methods are not fixed and that you need to appropriate them and make them yours, what a method of the future might look like, perhaps thinking of some some of the methods that we have developed so far to, to deal with this, are methods that help you gain access to these non-human perspectives. Mm-hmm. So, for example, we have um, developed a way of conducting ethnographic observations that we call thin ethnography, where we can either add sensors and software to objects of everyday use to understand how they are already connected mm-hmm. before being connected to the internet and how uh, that type of ecosystem have implications for how people will interact with the product or to interrogate existing products. For example, right now we are being asked increasingly to use some of the techniques we've developed, like interview with things to uh, look into the biases that are built into conversational agents. So you can, I think, imagine a method that helps you gain these uh, insights yeah, and challenges, yeah. and, and challenges you to 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 consider things that you thought were not relevant, not only that you couldn't see, because at a different scale perhaps, but also that uh, you perhaps thought were not remarkable or not relevant for that specific problem, but mm. indeed they are. Mm. Yeah, so so I think there's a you you, you sort of describe the whole range of design outcomes. You t- you tend to think of intelligence as a as a computational thing. It is a computational mm. thing but it doesn't only apply to interactive products. It could be something um, like buildings or cars, yeah. you know, the parameterization and the suggestion by a computa- computational agent of yeah. certain solutions and that, that, that dialogue or the co-performance that you call. That partnership, yeah. Yeah, yeah, is, um, I can see that developing in the future as, as much as you know something like a, a design method bot sitting on your work on your worktop monitoring yeah. your performance and telling you what to do I mean I mean the, the, I think that certainly what we will see is the rehearsal of these new partnerships right so if we take the idea of machine intelligence seriously we can imagine that there will be an array of, of methods and ways to bring that intelligence or 
that type of perspective to the table in the design process as co-ethnographer, co-designer, as just a way to question maybe certain choices. But I see it very much as a dialogue mm. and not as you were saying to auto, not so much to automate the process, which of course it will happen, but it's but the co it's more of a co tool. Yeah, the co-performance. The co-performance, the, 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 the hybrid design partnership, the, the, the hybrid sense-making process. Yeah, because well, I think in, in some sense, a design process is it's a co-performance in the sense that you when you have other people in the process you're trying to work out what mm. form of intelligence they have somehow yeah you know it might be expertise but it might be you know the believability of the things that they say in the process and i think the artificial mm -hmm. intelligence it's the same thing you're trying to work out what that intelligence can do to you, you can set set it certain problems and it can solve them within you know 500 milliseconds. Yeah, yeah. So that was a, a Lisa. It's quite a complex and sort of abstract discussion. I thought it touched on quite a few sort of philosophical issues almost. Mm -hmm. And I have to say that I did, I did um, up with the um, the recording. So mm. I, I, I missed the last bit of the um, the discussion. There was only a little bit, and I did thank Elisa at the end. So ah, uh, okay, <laughs> it, it did sound like it ended very abruptly. Yeah. So I wonder what you thought, Mika. Yeah, it made me it made me think. So uh, I really liked her her thinking. This is not usually a way I think about design and. You know, I know you are also interested in the role of intelligence and artificial intelligence in, in design methods. Because if we're talking about the future of design methods, I guess I've always been looking at it from the other side. And it's nice to kind of bring the two sides together. So when I say the other side, I mean that what we've seen over the past 10 years or so is that design's really expanded in terms of its application domain, right? So more in the areas of, um, you know, what design can do for businesses and when it can, what it can do for society in general. Uh, and I've actually studied how designers are kind of adapting their design methods and practices to this new expanded field. But what Elisa was talking about is more, you know, how technology kind of is changing uh, design at the same time. So it's actually quite interesting to to compare yeah, those things yeah, and, and, and yeah. bring those uh, those together. I thought it was it was interesting when you sort of think of a computational future, mm. how many familiar concepts you can sort of talk about too. So we talked about, you know, kind of stakeholders and co-design in a slightly different way. It adds this like different yeah, aspect to the discussion in terms of mm. introducing a kind of different intelligence and the, the idea of a com computer or computational intelligence being a stakeholder in the yeah. process. It, it just, it, it makes you do a double take, doesn't it? You know, yeah. what, what would that be? And um, yeah. One of the things I thought right at the end of the interview, there were two concepts that I thought were interesting to pick up on. And that was one was, you know, when you talk about AI, you talk about machine learning. Mm -hmm. And obviously a lot of the course has been about learning, you know, mm. learning in the design process. And the other thing right at the end, Elisa mentioned the idea of dialogue, too. And they, mm -hmm. I think there were two of the fundamental things that we wanted to introduce in the course. The idea that design is this kind of dialogue and also that the design process is a learning process. So I wondered, you know, bending back to the first podcast about reflective practice, mm. that using computers in this way makes you kind of reflect on what you're trying to do and, you know, what you learn and what other other intelligences learn during the process. Yeah. And how that intelligence comes into those learning loops. Yeah, 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 yeah. And what but, kind of dialogue you actually have with people. Because, yeah. I mean, in a sense, it's an artificial distinction between people and computers because... 
people are very di- people are very different too. I think we talked in the interview about you know in a co-design session you're trying to work out what kind of intelligence other people can bring into the discussion. Mm. Not everyone is equal, are they? They're trying to you know they bring their expertise in, and you you in a sense you're trying to work out what that expertise can bring and how you can work on the design together. Yeah, I, 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 one of the things I was thinking about is that I read an article a year ago about the term artificial intelligence. So when the first car was introduced, it was not called a car, it was called a horseless carriage <laughs> because they could only compare it to a carriage with a horse. So when artificial intelligence was introduced, it's always been, it's called artificial intelligence as in, you know, it's similar to what people do, but actually it's, it's, it's artificial. It's, it's not that. But if you think about it, it's, it's really something fundamentally different because it's not, you know, a different version of a human being. It mm-hmm. just brings something else mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. So if we're talking about dialogues between, you know, human beings and different types of stakeholders and designers and computers, then what, what does that type of dialogue really mean i mean there's still a lot we need to learn that we're still learning a lot about dialogue yeah, yeah, between yeah. human beings yeah, yeah. Uh, let alone when you bring other types of i mean I, th- I think looking back over the last maybe 25 years i mean since cad was introduced in mm-hmm. the 70s we've been used to sort of compute using computational tools i think elisa mentioned it too this idea that computers are a tool that we can that we can use and that we use, in a sense, to reflect on. We have a kind of dialogue. If you're, especially the kind of more intelligent CAD these days, it sort of gives you kind of kind of options. You can set a range of parameters, and you can think you can follow a kind of a process that the, that you work with the computer in 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 developing. But I think what I got from that interview was that we're going up a level here. That that they're not kind of more passive tools. They're much more kind of active tools. And actually, computers are actually participating in the process of design. Yeah, and it doesn't end. It doesn't end, actually. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, you know, a cat, something you use, you know, before the product. Yeah, there. yeah. But here we talk about technology in yeah. the products that's continuously it's designing co- and changing. Exactly, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that was really striking. We know that data is the kind of future. And I think that opens up all kinds of questions about the use of data the collection of data how things collect data and understand human behavior those things are all sort of caught up Mm. in the idea that we're trying to you know and design becomes much more fluid and and diffuse you know it's sort of like you're trying to manage this kind of moving stream of of, of data somehow yeah so like a designer of the future is going to have to be able to understand and kind of manipulate during the interview i had the feeling that it was much more like playing Mm. you know design will be much more about playing and sort of seeing seeing what happens but within certain ethical boundaries i think that's always going to be a something that humans bring is an ethical stance to designing. It reminded me of this uh, uh, talk of uh, John Seely Brown from Xerox Park, where he was talking about how fast society is changing, how fast technology is changing. And he says, well, we're basically living in exponential times because things are changing so fast that no one can become an expert in anything and everyone will always be a newbie. So that's quite a scary thought. But he says, well, all you need to do in these kind of contexts is that you need to adapt. So you need to constantly adapt. And I think that's what's also happening to design. You know, with these kind of new technological developments, we as designers, we need to constantly adapt. Mm. And that's an interesting concept, because what does that mean then for students who are studying design? You know, they're they're studying these 
different design methods. But I think we should also be uh, teaching them or learning together how we can actually adapt to a changing world. Yeah, yeah. It's it's that sense of, I think, um, the term is negative capability, where you're happy in situations that are ambiguous. You Mm -hmm. can live in those situations Mm -hmm. and you can sort of play with them. You don't get stressed when things aren't resolved. And I think that's an ability that designers, you know, good designers have that anyway, I think. But the idea that a method is this thing that you can grasp hold of, this kind of life jacket that's going to save you because it's a very, you know, a structured process that I don't, maybe that's not true in the future. That's something mm-hmm. that, you know, that's an, an old way of designing. I think that idea of user centered design that Elisa was trying to kind of shift away from the idea that, you know, right in the middle of the process is this set of user needs that you're trying to fulfill. Once you turn that around and actually the design is all about exploring user experience and, uh, you know, design is a bit more automated. I think that's the the abilities and capabilities you need change quite a lot, I think. Yeah, something that complements that is that in, in my research, I'm looking at you know, how designers deal with complexity in the world, not necessarily in technology, but just that we're you know, dealing with complex societal mm-hmm. challenges. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we're seeing is that designers are more and more focused on relationships between people. So not just users, not just stakeholders, but relationships between different stakeholders and um, the tensions that this causes and the opportunities. Uh, you know, one of the examples is I, I studied this project, which was for uh, primary school teachers and, you know, what we could do to help those teachers do their job better. And the first approach was, well, let's just design a product or something that can help those individual teachers. But they ended up designing a speech sharing event. Mm-hmm. So an event where teachers come together, learn from each other. And in, through that means can do their job better. So that's a good example of very, you know, kind of using the relationships between people. And and I think in a way you're setting up the conditions for design to happen. And that's I, right. That, and that's what I think that's Elisa exactly was right. talking a, a, about, you know, she talked about seeding the design process. So, you, you, yeah. so as a designer, you just choose the sort of important things in a kind of an abstract way and you, you set things in motion and then you allow design to to happen somehow you're not in control of the pro you're kind of in control of the process because you Mm. set up the process but but there are outcomes that you you won't expect so you need to be able to deal with that ambiguity like you said we need to think about the world in a different way creating platforms or things that enable or conditions i think it also requires humbleness um, because uh, if we're not humble about what we're doing then we won't really learn if, if we're talking about adaptation how do you adapt you adapt by also learning from others also from other disciplines for example so I think the future of design methods uh, we also be working much more with other disciplines mm. and mm. Uh, maybe feed into each other's disciplines for example I thought the um, one of the methods, the future design methods that Elisa talked about that I thought was interesting was to try and understand what's happening from the perspective of a thing or an observing thing of a, you know, I don't know, like a temperature sensor or, or something that's collecting data about human behavior and trying to, it's, I, I can't remember what she called it, was it digital ethnography or something? Um, yeah, I, I, where, I know the work. I think she used a kettle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, where you're trying to put yourself in the shoes of a thing a physical thing to understand what it sees as an example of a a new method i Mm. think that would that's quite interesting exciting times (laughs) (laughs) yeah well it's clear that i mean the data science aspect of it all and the data that's generated i think what i was quite interested in is 
when we sort of began to touch on the ethical aspects and how often ethical aspects come up in this kind of discussion with data. And the, the final thing that I thought was interesting was the idea of co-performance too. You know, I hadn't really had come across that term before the, the interview and I suddenly thought that's quite a nice way of describing, even, even design without computers, it's quite a nice way of describing design as a sort of performance that you're trying to stage something in setting up a kind of collaborative process. And there is a kind of performance of gestures and language and there's a kind of theatre of designing mm -hmm. that's implied in that term that mm -hmm. I think is quite quite accurately captures some of the more the, the physical aspects of designing somehow mm. or the, the um So if designers go performers then are designers more playing directors? Roles. Oh they're yeah. playing roles. Well well I guess I guess <laughs> yeah actors. it opens up that kind of the ma that metaphor of theatre yeah. yeah. is quite a good one for design yeah, direction and role playing yeah. and you know kind of the the dialogue aspect too yeah. i think comes in there too yeah okay acting classes yeah <laughs> yeah no absolutely yeah. well i think i mean and partly the second video i think some of the videos that we've seen have students have taken roles and acted out those roles and i think that's a really i've always thought that's a useful way of trying to understand situations that you haven't experienced is yeah. actually trying to put yourself in totally. in, in those shoes yeah, yeah. So I think a discussion about the future of design touches on lots of things yes. outside of what you'd, you'd, you'd naturally think of. So yeah. I thought was, the interview was good in, in sort of eliciting those kind yeah. of um, discussions. Well, the other way to, th to think about it is, you know, if we're talking about the future of design, we can see all those changes. But it's also interesting to think about what is it that will stay? Yeah. Will we still be designers? And yeah. what is it? Yeah. I think the more we're changing, the also the more we need to clarify what what design really is. It's a good point to end on. Yes. Okay. That's our final Oh no. <laughs> podcast. It's a bit sad. Well, we may have a but uh, we may have one more podcast. Yeah, okay. Um, a short just one. just giving our thoughts on the course, but that probably won't be for a few weeks. But I think that's the last kind of content podcast. Yes. And I've really enjoyed talking about all these subjects. And I, I, I do think the podcast is a good way of just introducing people to the different aspects of design. I've really loved making this uh, podcast. I'm definitely going to do it uh, a lot more in the, in the future. And uh, yeah, I think uh, I really enjoy the discussions we've had in this uh, little <laughs> little <laughs> studio, this little box. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, it's been great. Yeah, thanks, it's, Mika. Uh, good fun. Yeah, thanks, Peter. Okay, and bye, everyone. Thanks for listening. Bye. <laughs>